You are tuned to The Conversation on Hawaii Public Radio. I'm Catherine Cruz. Hotel workers and grocery store workers are among the latest group that will be allowed to sign up to get vaccines. They are part of Group 1C that includes essential workers not previously covered, as well as those seniors 65 and above and other high-risk people with chronic diseases. We talked to Hilton Rathel, head of the Healthcare Association of Hawaii, who cautioned it may take a while to get to everyone who wants a vaccine because it still depends on the supply. He breaks down this latest announcement. There's actually three groups of individuals in Phase 1C. So the first group is um, actually 65 uh, people aged 65 to 74. Now, Department of Health, as we all know, has already um, opened up for 70 to 74-year-olds. So many of those have already gotten their shots or literally getting them this week. So, the, uh, again, the three groups in Phase 1C are 65 to 74-year-olds, the rest of the essential frontline workers and individuals. The third group is individuals between 16 and 65 with high-risk medical conditions. Now, there are a, approximately 340,000 individuals in the state of Hawaii that meet that category or meet the conditions for that category of high-risk medical conditions between 16 and 64 because that includes everything from smoking, obesity, hypertension, cancer, lung transplant, etc. There's no way that we can vaccinate all of those individuals, you know, in the next few weeks. The Department of Health is working on some messaging, which will be out, and we have been working with them on this messaging as an association. There are three groups of individuals in that high-risk medical condition who will be able to start getting their vaccine starting next week. Those three groups of individuals are people who have who are on dialysis with end-stage renal disease, people who are on supplemental oxygen for either lung disease or cardiovascular disease, and individuals who are receiving chemotherapy or some other type of therapy through an infusion center. So if anyone between 16 and 65 meets one of those three criteria, they will be able to start getting vaccinated starting Monday of next week, along with the 65 to 69-year-olds and along with the other or the rest of the frontline essential workers. Now, to your question about is enough a vaccine to do all of those, it is going to take a number of weeks to get through that group or those three groups of individuals. The vaccine supply is increasing. We will be vaccinating people as quickly as we can, but it will still take a number of weeks to get through that category before we can move on to other categories. Because this is such a large group, I mean, are we going to, like, crash the system, crash the website? The group of 65 to 70 is, uh, I believe, about 120,000 roughly. So that's about two weeks' worth of shots right now for just to do that group. Then you've got the rest of the frontline essential workers. I'm not sure exactly how many are in that group. And then you've got those people with high-risk conditions who do meet that criteria that we talked about. So it will take, again, a number of weeks to get through, which means that there will be a, it will be challenging for the, you know, for the first couple of weeks. People are literally have started calling right now, so they're already hitting our hospitals and these other vaccination sites. So we're hoping that our systems don't crash. But the goal was to be able to open it up so that we can fill up as many slots as possible. And, of course, this will max out all available slots for a number of weeks. There are different types of vaccines. And I know, uh, I think I saw you had mentioned that uh, there would be information on the website. And if you wanted the Johnson & Johnson, you would just go to whatever location that was offering that. So is that going to be doable with this large group? Well, Hawaii got 11,900 doses of the Johnson & Johnson vaccine last week. 6,000 of those doses were distributed to the neighbor islands, 2,000 each to Kauai, Maui, and the Big Island, and 5,900 doses were kept on Oahu. That is all the Johnson & Johnson vaccine we have at this point in time. We are not getting any this week, and we do not anticipate getting any next week. So right now we have a very limited supply of Johnson & Johnson vaccine. Primarily, we have Pfizer and Moderna. Now, those vaccines are available. Um, The hospitals generally are using Pfizer vaccine. 
the uh, community health centers, Department of Health, district health offices, the pharmacies, they are using Moderna. So depending on where you go right now or where you get your vaccine from as to which vaccine you can get. So later this month, there will be some sites where you will be able to choose which vaccine you can get. And the way that's going to work is that some sites will have the Moderna vaccine perhaps three days a week, and then they'll use the Pfizer vaccine for the remaining three days a week because they're open six days a week. So you can choose which vaccine you get by which day you go and get yourself vaccinated. Now, Johnson & Johnson, we again, we got the 11,900 doses. We're not getting any this week. We're not getting any next week. We don't know yet how much we're going to get by the end of the month. And because we don't know how much we're going to get yet, we don't know how we're going to allocate that. As soon as we get visibility about how many doses we are going to get, we'll be able to figure out where to send it. But it there will be um, available in a number of different sites across all the islands. And so by the end of this month, many people will have a choice of which vaccine they choose to get by depending on which site they go to. And that is good news because there are a lot of people, for example, who are interested in the Johnson & Johnson vaccine because it's only one shot. They only have to make one appointment. They don't have to worry about you know, well, I have to make a second appointment. Can I make the second appointment? Is there going to be a dose for me when I get the second appointment? So there is a high level of interest in the Johnson & Johnson vaccine, which is very good because all of these vaccines are very, very effective, highly effective, especially against serious illness and death, and they are all very, very safe. I did talk to someone who has a condition, I think, that requires an uh, EpiPen, and I think this person was advised by the doctor we should probably get Johnson & Johnson to be less chance for a reaction, but what should people do if they had allergies to something? If anyone has any concerns about allergies or have has does have a history of allergies, we would recommend that they go to one of the hospital vaccination pods because all of the hospital vaccination pods have emergency services immediately available. Now, no matter where you go, even the pop-up clinics, they all have medical personnel available. However, if you were to go to a community pop-up clinic and someone were to have a serious reaction, that individual may need to be transported to a hospital, whereas if you go to a hospital site, that care is available even more immediately. But we do ensure that every single site that uh, is administering the vaccine does have emergency services personnel, clinical personnel available on site. You know, if you were to go to Pier 2 or the Blaisdell, for example, there are doctors and nurses on site with the equipment, with the EpiPens, and they can take care of anything that does happen. Now, fortunately, the incidents both in Hawaii and across the country of strong reactions to the vaccines is extremely low. And there are literally tens of millions of doses of these vaccines that have been given across the U.S. And in Hawaii, we're very, very fortunate to have had nothing that's really substantial in terms of reaction. We've had a couple of people who may have fainted, for example, you know, they're, they're anxious, they're concerned, you know, so we, I'm not saying we haven't had any reactions, but we have not had any very, very serious reactions in the state of Hawaii to date from almost 500,000 people who have received at least one dose because we're, very, very, we're just a few days away from having um, almost 500,000 doses administered already in the state of Hawaii. We're very, very pleased with the number of individuals who are seeking the vaccine. The fact that so many want to get it is a very, very good thing because we believe that it's a very, very safe vaccine. We know it's a very, very safe vaccine. We know that uh, we need to get as many people vaccinated as possible so we can get back to our, you know, whatever the new normal is going to be. Um, in our nursing homes, for example, we have a number of nursing homes, about six, I believe, that had 100% of the residents vaccinated. The statewide average is 90 plus percent in terms of residents in nursing homes. The statewide average for staff being vaccinated in nursing homes is over, over 80% and going even higher because there are additional uh, staff in the nursing homes getting vaccinated as well. Got a very high number of our medical personnel across the whole state vaccinated. It's very, very good news. You know, there was you know, a number of people had concerns, which we understand when it first came out. We had some people in our hospitals who initially chose not to get the vaccine. And 
as they have seen that their friends, their neighbours, their co-workers get the vaccine, the very minimal number of reactions, and as more and more evidence comes out about how safe they are, the number of deaths that are not occurring because of vaccinations in the country, more and more people are saying, okay, well, yeah, it, it is safe. So our numbers of people in our hospitals, for example, while they may have been you know, 60%, 70% initially in terms of um, percentage of people getting vaccinated, those numbers are going up all the time. And that's very, very encouraging that so many people in Hawaii do want to get vaccinated. And the allocation uh, state by state, are we getting less because our numbers are down? No, it is. It is. We are getting our, our share. Now, we have the choice every week to whether or not to accept the vaccine that is allocated to us or assigned to the state and it is done basically on population. And the good news is that the Department of Health are the ones who actually place those orders. They are taking every single dose that is available. So we're getting our share of the allocation. Now, you know, someone may ask, well, how come Alaska, for example, just made an announcement that anyone 16 and above in Alaska can get vaccinated, which is much further along than Hawaii. Well, the reason for that is that about 25% of the population of Alaska are native Alaskans. And so the native Alaskans had a, a whole separate stream of vaccine. In other words, there was a separate supply for all the native Alaskans than there was for the rest of the population in Alaska, the non-native Alaskans. And so because all those native Alaskans were vaccinated, very early on because they got all the vaccine they needed. Only 75% of the population was left for the, for the whole state allocation coming through the federal government. So bottom line is Alaska per capita got a much higher allocation than what Hawaii or other states has because of the native Alaskans and that separate supply. Just like in Hawaii, the Army, for example, they have a separate allocation. So anyone in the armed services in Hawaii, they don't get the allocation from the Department of Health. They get it directly from the federal government. So that has helped us a little bit as well because we have a you know, significant number of military personnel in the state and dependents. So that means there's less people that are non-military that need to be vaccinated. So that's one of the reasons we're doing as well as we are here in Hawaii. But we could be vaccinating a lot more people right now than what we are. We're, we're, right now, we're, we're doing about 55,000, 60,000 doses a week. We could be doing 100 to 110, maybe even 120,000 doses a week if we had the supply. We hope we get to that supply maybe in April, and then we'll be just be able to get through our population much faster and get everyone vaccinated who chooses to be vaccinated. That was Hilton Rathel, head of the Healthcare Association of Hawaii. We talked to him yesterday afternoon about the latest on the vaccine rollout. Civil Beats Reality Check with us today looks at the military's efforts to vaccinate its troops and their families. Reporter Kevin Nodell covers military affairs and joins us. Good morning. Good morning. So as we heard Hilton Rathel mention, you know, the military then has their own stash of vaccines, right, for their personnel. Yeah, the, the military is vaccinating people completely separately from the DOH's efforts here in Hawaii. It's um, a completely different structure um, that focuses on personnel at the bases and is handled by federal agencies. And we know that the military has been in the past reluctant to, uh, you know, divulge like all the positive COVID cases. Um, and, and so, yeah, it was interesting that, uh, you know, the that we learned about, you know, their attempts to try and uh, spread the vaccine through the dependents. Right. Well, I think that it's it's not as much that as they, they've already kind of been 
going through all all the other parts of their population, their critical personnel. Uh, mm. Dependence, um, I think, is just because the vaccine is becoming more widely available and the vaccine is being delivered on a regular basis to these bases. Um, it's, it's just much more available at this point. Um, they're... Their critical personnel, their at-risk personnel is is relatively low. Um, military in general is is young, fit, um, healthy, low risk factor. So as, as these vaccines make their way around, it, it's able to make it to more people. And so the the uh, what Tripler Army Medical Center, then that's become become the hub uh, for these vaccines. Right. Well, because it's kind of it's kind of the hub of military medicine on the island altogether. It's the largest facility and, and kind of oversees some of these efforts throughout throughout the island. Um, they are doing vaccinations there, but also at other military clinics. And this week they set up kind of a pop up drive in clinic at uh, Wheeler Army Airfield where uh, people can kind of drive up, don't even need to leave the vehicle, can get vaccinated there and get on their way. And that that concludes today, I believe, and they're going to do follow up later for everybody who got got vaccinated there to get their second dose. And they're looking at additional locations where they can do some of these pop up clinics. And have you seen one of these pop up uh, clinics in action? Not not a not a military one. Mm, um, OK, uh, but I, but I did see a pop up clinic that uh the VA is doing. The VA mm. also is separate from the military, though they have their headquarters at at Tripler. It's a separate agency, and uh, they have their own ch- supply chain. And uh, they're they they're working on vaccinating uh, veterans, for, former service members throughout the Pacific, so Hawaii, as well as American Samoa and Guam and all the other Mariana Islands. Uh, so so they, they've got a big task ahead of them, and uh, they are currently vaccinating anybody who is 65 years of age or older or anybody who's deemed an essential worker. And I know that, um, you know, there have been uh, reports recently about how uh, uh, a number of uh, service personnel uh, has been declining the vaccine, even though they were maybe next in line. Right. Uh, that, 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 that has been happening. Um, but uh, part, part of that, uh, we, we had the chief of the Defense Health Agency out here um, last month, and he was on a conference call with um, some press out here. And one of, one of the things that he explained is, while that is happening, um, there's a variety of reasons why people say no. Um, and also, it's important to note that at, when they say no, the other two-thirds of people who are interested um, are taking it. So they're not having a problem getting the vaccines into people. Okay. Well, it, it is a interesting snapshot just to see what is happening with our military personnel since they do make up a, a large uh, part of our community. But uh, thanks so much, Kevin. Yeah, thank you. That was reporter Kevin Nodell with today's Reality Check. To read his story, visit civilbeat.org. Support for The Conversation comes from the HPR Local Talk Show Fund, which helps Hawaii Public Radio sustain and grow its locally produced talk shows. Mahalo to contributor Honolulu Waldorf School. Each week, New Dimensions explores the social, political, scientific, environmental, and spiritual frontiers with some of today's foremost social innovators, thinkers, scientists, and creative artists. Hello, I'm Dr. Devin Price, the author of Laziness Does Not Exist. Next time on New Dimensions, I'll be talking about reclaiming our lives from overload, burnout, and the laziness lie. Beginning Sunday morning at 11. Ever wonder what it takes to run a radio station in a pandemic? We pull back the curtain in HPR's 2020 annual report. 
we recap the accomplishments of our local news team and highlight how we've continued to celebrate live music this year, plus some silver linings for good measure. Those on our email list will automatically receive the report. If you're not yet subscribed, just send a note to members at hawaiipublicradio.org. Support for Hawaii Public Radio comes from the Honolulu Museum of Art, presenting the exhibition Kamram Samimi in Stillness, with works exploring ideas of space, time, and impermanence. HonoluluMuseum.org. A million dollars. That was the average sales price for a home on Kauai for the second time in a row. Here on Oahu, the price tag is $800,000. Pretty heady stuff if you are hoping to achieve the American dream of home ownership and can't afford it. We check back in with Mike Scalars. He's the president and CEO of Collateral Analytics about the real estate snapshot here and across the country. Nationally, the prices really just exploded in the second half of 2020. And of course, we're seeing similar trends here in Hawaii. The story has been unexpectedly, I think, as soon as the pandemic started, the market froze up and no one really knew what was going to happen. And really, for the first month or two, you know, people took their homes off the market that had had homes listed. Obviously, people didn't want potential buyers coming into their house for open houses and showings and things like that. And so it was really quite a remarkable time. And then suddenly, the market just took off interest rates, of course, went down dramatically at that time. And that further fueled this interest. And, and then the trends have been kind of evolving ever since where... People work more working at home. This is obviously a new phenomenon, and that's probably going to continue to varying degrees in the future. So people started saying, well, if I'm going to be doing this uh, part of my work week, I'll need to build out a home office or I need some more space. And so then there became a real fixation on larger homes. And there's, again, a national trend. I'm sure some of this is being reflected here in Hawaii. So people are looking for larger homes or looking for houses with big backyards and and pools and a lot of things that were driven by fears of people living in closed spaces. So we saw some you know, very bifurcated behavior in the market where single family prices, like I say, uh, the, the second so year over year by the end of December, were up like 16 percent nationally, which is uh, the biggest jump since the uh, mid 2000s, you know, 2005 or Six is what I meant to say right before that that bubble. And then conversely, condo prices actually uh, remain flat. And so this theme of people wanting to be in less dense housing and having bigger spaces and larger homes and so on, all basically has been playing out. At the same time, because people are saying, well, maybe I might have been looking to move or buy a new home or something, they're then saying, well, let's go expand this home or renovate this home. And so that house that would have normally come on the market now isn't on the market. And this sort of has had a feedback effect where less inventory has been on the market. And, and now we have the lowest level of inventory in probably 30 years now. It's been quite a remarkable uh, phenomenon that we've seen. Really, now we're one year into this. And here in Hawaii, the inventory has always been the stickler, right? We just don't right. have enough. We aren't building enough. And people couldn't afford the prices when they were available. And now that we see the prices creep up, you know, 800000 900000 a million, that even puts home ownership farther out of reach for many people. Yeah. The one thing that we're seeing nationally is because interest rates went down so dramatically, actually the monthly payment, has basically been relatively flat if you can afford to make the down payment on one of these higher-priced homes. So so that, I think, has, has really, you know, where we've seen these big jumps in prices, like I say, nationally as well, you know, it's quite interesting how the, the monthly payment, assuming somebody could make a 20% down payment, is actually hasn't really changed in the last five years or so. And that affordability measure then is, has actually been sustained. But the real challenge, I think, like you're saying, here in Hawaii in particular, is, is can people come up with the, the down payments needed uh, to qualify for a mortgage? At one time, you know, here in Hawaii, we used to track sales from foreign owners. And I don't know if anybody still does that here in the islands. Is that something that you're tracking nationally? We've done some work there. And, of course, I did quite a bit of that in years past. As you can imagine, uh, most of the buying has been domestic and probably more local just because uh, we haven't allowed people to come into the state to even buy a property if they're looking for one. So, 
So uh, that hasn't really been a factor here. I really think it's you know this end user owner owner occupant. And again, with the very limited amount of inventory available, uh, you know that that's one of the phenomenon is the price gets pushed up with uh, lack of supply. You know, my my understanding here is it's mostly local and maybe some mainland buyers, not the foreign buyers we saw before in previous cycles at this time. And is there uh, any particular trend on the mainland? I mean, on the coast or inland? Or is it pretty much across the board that the sales are just up? Yeah, so what we've seen on the mainland, of course, people with COVID problems in New York and to a lesser extent San Francisco and some of the denser cities. So very clear patterns of people buying houses in the suburbs and not buying properties in cities such as New York and San Francisco and so on. And that's not impacted not only prices, but rents. So it's pretty, uh, some recent uh, stories we actually wrote one ourselves about how like rents in Manhattan are down 20% from a year ago. And we've seen similar patterns to a lesser extent, say, in San Francisco. So so the condos, you know, this denser living properties that people are trying to avoid have actually gone obviously the other way. But the larger homes has been the pattern and more suburban properties has been the pattern in terms of where all the interest has been. Now with this ability to uh, work remotely and so... Uh, We'll see how this plays out. Obviously, this even has impacts for the office market going forward. Companies are asking themselves, do we still need as much office space if we're going to allow employees to work remotely either all the time or a portion of the week? And then as a result, they're saying, okay, well, maybe this home now is really doubling as an office in some form. Then it really doesn't matter where I'm living. So why don't I go live in a place like Hawaii that's very desirable? So, so that's why I think we're seeing some of these things in these uh, upscale markets. What do you make of our prices locally? I mean, you've watched the sales here in the islands for decades. So what do you make of it now that, that Kauai's average home is a million dollars? Again, uh, that's your single family, right? And we know sort of the story in Hawaii is, you know, for long-term residents is they start with a condo or a townhouse and um, try to get on the, uh, the conveyor belt of ownership and then hold that for some period of time, build up equity, and then and then next cycle, you know, parlay that equity into a single-family home. Our typical first-time buyer doesn't jump into the, the million-dollar property. She's really buying that uh, these days. Out of the median condo, I think, is about 430000 here on Oahu, and that would be, um, you know, the more realistic price, I guess, for the younger buyer. So I think it's a little bit deceiving when you talk about the million-dollar homes as, as being the only market here. And we have, obviously, a very big condo market here, one of the biggest in the country in terms of the percentage of all the housing units. I was actually looking at some stats earlier today, and the uh, Kakako market, actually the condo market, is probably one of the softest in terms of some of the uh, metrics that we've been talking about. So where single-family listings have gone way down, and our other metric, we, which is months of inventory, have gone way down to one, two, three months, which is very low. We're seeing actually um, condos in town, in particular in the Kagaku, are actually uh, higher numbers of listings and higher levels of inventory. Somewhat of a similar pattern in Waikiki, but not nearly as much. The listings there have gone up, and inventory levels, as measured by months remaining, have gone up. But then our condo markets in Kailua and Hawaii Kai and more outlying areas have actually uh, more followed the single-family trend of, of you know, really declining listings and low market times and all the other metrics that we follow. So it's even on our small island, we've got very different little sub-markets. That was Mike Scalaris, president of Collateral Analytics, reflecting on the recovery the real estate market has made as we mark a year since the start of the pandemic.
Heavy rains across the state have caused severe flooding in parts of Maui, Oahu, and Kauai. The surging waters took out bridges, caused landslides, and sent hundreds of gallons of water and mud surging through several homes, prompting Governor David Ige to declare a state of emergency. Whenever natural disasters strike, many are left to clean up what's left, and many questions about what to do next arise. The conversations Russell Subiono spoke with Carol T.L. Beam, the state coordinator for the National Flood Insurance Program, which is overseen by the Hawaii Department of Land and Natural Resources. With the recent heavy rain causing flooding, landslides, and evacuations on Maui, Oahu, and Kauai this week, what's the most important thing someone who is directly impacted should do right now? If they're directly impacted right now, I mean, I'd like for them to be safe, take all the precautions that local officials are telling folks to do. I know that there's a lot of information out there that can help people, but people may not always know where to go to find that information. What would you say is is a good place for people impacted by the flooding to find the information to, to help them recover? Well, I think the first and foremost thing, I mean, if he has suffered any type of damage, I mean, flood damage or other yeah. damages, related to the flooding, then I would want them to call their insurance agent first and foremost because there are some deadlines and time-sensitive things that need to happen. And so calling and contacting their agent is, is really important. Now, someone might say, well, I don't have flood insurance. And I don't know if you know that most homeowners' policies don't cover for flood, so if you didn't have flood insurance prior to this event, you will likely not be covered. So even though someone doesn't have flood insurance, I really strongly suggest that they call their agent because, you know, a lot of times we don't remember what kind of insurance we have, what it covers, what it doesn't cover. So it would be a good time to touch bases with your agent to find that out because if they don't have flood insurance, Probably a good time to think about it, especially if they, you know, did suffer damages. Uh, hurricane season is right around the corner. Quite possibly one of the biggest misconceptions homeowners have about their homeowner's insurance is that it might cover flood. And right. it sounds like flood insurance is actually a separate policy. It is a separate policy. And I say most homeowners because I can't speak for all. I mean, it's just in general. But, of course, like I said, talking to your insurance agent and understanding what type of insurance you have, what it covers, and what it doesn't cover, then you'll probably know that you may need to purchase flood insurance. And that would be for a future event, unfortunately, because the 30-day wait, typically, uh, for it to go into effect. So anybody who were to purchase insurance now they'd have to wait 30 days to be able to file a claim or, or be able to benefit from that particular insurance. Right. I mean, typically, because there are a few conditions upon which the insurance would be effective immediately. But in general, if you were just to optionally buy insurance, because say like this event, you know, you realize, wow, I need to be insured. The sooner you get it, the better, because it's going to be a 30-day wait and... Hurricane season is coming up, and then it looks like we're going to ride out this wet, rainy season, and then a brief pause, and then we go into hurricane season. So it's really important that folks understand what they're protected by in terms of insurance. I, I hear what you're saying. It's even for people who weren't affected by the recent floods, with potential storms coming in later, especially with hurricane season coming up it's best that they start thinking about how to protect their, their property and, and their home and, and their valuables by checking into right. insurance. And does flood insurance cover damage from storms or, or is there like a separate storm insurance somebody has to get? I say it's complicated because I'm not an insurance professional. I'm an engineer. Um, but there's a specific definition of flood and you have to meet that definition in order for you to qualify to file a claim under your flood insurance. Uh, and then, you know, there's hurricane insurance, which is usually wind-driven. 
there's all different types. And then you might have flooding from, say, like a some kind of pipe in your in your home that broke and it started to flood your living room or something. That that may be covered maybe covered under homeowners, you know. So there's different scenarios and you'd need different types of coverages and that's why it's super important to discuss uh, those things with your agent. It sounds like it's very nuanced in, in what kind of insurance covers what kind of damage. Mm-hmm. Okay. Mm-hmm. And so it's best that that homeowners or property owners or even renters talk to an insurance agent and see what kind of coverage they can get yeah, exactly. for these particular because, situations. Um, the NFIP does have uh, flood insurance for renters to cover their contents. In your experience, is there a high risk for flooding here? Are we kind of average on the spectrum? In general, we actually we have a lot of uh, high-risk areas. But when I say we have a lot of high-risk areas, these are based on, on studies that FEMA has done on historical data. So this is not this is not including sea level rise, which is you know something that is uh, projected. Yeah. So the fr- the flood maps that that folks have to build to or that would be required to have flood insurance as a condition of the loan is not uh, it doesn't have sea level rise taken into account. The maps are based on historical data and. It's based on a 1% annual chance event, which you might have heard the term 100-year flood, mm-hmm. but it doesn't take into account sea level rise. So it's important for folks to know, especially who live along the coast, um, who live along the east side where I live, and we see water coming over Cam Highway and you yeah. know eroding the roadways. I mean, we know that this is happening, so we can insure ourselves to protect against sea level rise. We can actually build to a higher standard to protect against sea level rise. Back to information available to people impacted by the floods. FEMA and DLNR's National Flood Insurance Program has a five-step how to file a flood insurance claim fact sheet on their website. So the first step is to start a claim with the insurance company. The second step is to document the loss are you able to give any tips on how thoroughly that documentation should be? I would take as much pictures and video that you can because, see, we're out here in the middle of the Pacific, and a lot of times these adjusters are coming in from the mainland, and it takes time. And especially now during COVID, you know, there's probably extra things that need to be done before they can get on island and hit the ground running and doing these assessments, these damage assessments. So it's important to take a lot of pictures before, you know, it, it becomes a health hazard where in the property owner really needs to start to dispose of some of the, the items or putting it off to the side definitely because of mold setting in yeah. and stuff like that. So it's, it's important to take as much pictures as you can, but really tell your agent as soon as possible because there's things that they may say you need to save and you don't want to throw that away. Um, and then the other thing I, I really think that people, if, if possible, can do is try to back that data up, those pictures, those videos on Dropbox, Amazon or Google or something, there's probably free apps that you can do just in the event that something happens to your phone or your camera, and then you lose all of that documentation before your adjuster can even get out here. Yeah, and it's so easy for us to drop our phones or, or lose them or, or um, <laughs> yeah. you know, or they get misplaced uh, in any other way. So, yeah, it's very important for uh, those impacted by the floods to back up their phones and their videos and their pictures. Is there any particular number or website that uh, a person can go if they were impacted by the floods? What I'm trying to do um, is trying to gather all of that information that you're talking about that people need all in one place. Because, you know, when when you're in this situation and you, you can't be trying to Google and try to search all of these different sites. And so what I'm going to do is I'm going to try to put together a web page really dedicated to this event and all the different resources and pull it into one place. So 
if your listeners want to visit waihalana.org, that's W-A-I-H-A-L-A-N-A.org, and read our blog, and then I will actually be developing a web page in the process of putting it together to pull together the different counties' information as well as the state information into one place and the fact sheets and all that good stuff. That was Carol Tiao Beam, the state coordinator for the Department of Land and Natural Resources National Flood Insurance Program. She was talking with the Conversations, Russell Subiono. Uh, and just a heads up, if you've been impacted by the recent flooding, we will have links uh, to all that good information from DLNR and also information from the Hawaii Department of Commerce and Consumer Affairs on our website, hawaiipublicradio.org. Support for Hawaii Public Radio comes from Par Hawaii, an energy company with more than 680 employees statewide helping to keep Hawaii on the move. Learn more at parhawaii.com. Coming up on the next Science Friday, the challenges of building an ultra-big, ultra-smooth telescope mirror. If the mirror were expanded to the size of North America, the average hill would be just two-thirds of an inch tall. Plus, Jackson, Mississippi's three-week water crisis is coming to an end. But is this just a Band-Aid solution? That's on Science Friday from WNYC Studios. Beginning this afternoon at 1. Support for The Conversation comes from the HPR Local Talk Show Fund, which helps Hawaii Public Radio sustain and grow its locally produced talk shows. Mahalo to contributor Ulupono Initiative. The emergency flood threat evacuations on Maui and Oahu's North Shore and the damage to Kauai's Kohio Highway after a massive landslide certainly raised our alert level this past week. You know, we got to wondering about the stability of our dams across the state. We reached out to Ed Tixera uh, as a former vice director of the former state civil defense department. He visited many of the dams here on Oahu and on the neighbor islands. He also used to be with the Hawaii County Civil Defense Department under Mayor Billy Kenoy. I left state service in 2011, late 2011, and I thought by that time government, including the help of the Army Corps of Engineers, had really gone through almost 100% of the various uh, dams that we have and water structures that we have in Hawaii. Uh, We were required to look at all of them, inspect all of them, and, um, and submit a report on their conditions. I think the legislative year after uh, the Coloco Dam failure of and was it 2006? How can I forget that that year, right? We started that year with heavy, heavy rains brought about by a constant, constant occurrence of upper low-level pressure systems, what the weather guys call Kona lows. I remember it raining for 40 days, 40 nights. You know, it sounds very biblical, right? And a lot of things happened in that time frame. But at the end of that year, toward October, then we had that major earthquake that caused a lot of damage also in Hawaii. So it's 2006 is a year I can't forget. But getting back to the colloquial dam failure, it was a very tragic event, and that spurred government in the state to go out there and start inspecting a lot of these dams and water structures. But I've got to also say that through the help of the Department Department of Land and Natural Resources, the County of Kauai, and also help out of the Office of State Civil Defense in Diamond Head, we had already gone out and looked at certain dams particularly on Kauai and on Oahu, that we felt could pose a threat to the communities that were situated above. I'll give you one example, Lake Wilson. Lake Wilson here in Wahiwa. You know, when the water level reaches a certain height in Lake Wilson, the outflow from the spillways can still cause flooding downstream. So there were several water structures that we already were looking at before the Coloco Dam failure. And so do you still have concerns about Lake Wilson? Even after the Coloco Dam failure, i got to tell you, Catherine, Lake Wilson, for me as a state civil defender, emergency manager, 
was always up there on uh, like a, like a priority item. Uh, in other words, uh, every time we saw a lot of rainfall, I would have the uh, state warning point, which is a 24-7 function at, uh, at Diamond Head. I'm now under what is called the Hawaii Emergency Management Agency, or HIEMA. I think they're still in operation, but that was always an area that they had to keep an eye on because if it rained, and, you know, it, it didn't take really the rainy season. It, it could happen throughout the year, depending on what kind of weather systems impacted Hawaii how much rainfall it would bring to certain areas, particularly in the central area of uh, Oahu. But just the right amount of rain could just have that, uh, particularly Lake Wilson, start to rise. Luckily, uh, I think Gold Company had, and I think in conjunction with the Department of Land and Natural Resources, had some water gauges in there that we could, you know, take a readout almost constantly to see the, the water heights. But if I do recall, I think when the water heights got up to about 80 to 82 feet, it required uh, an evacuation downstream. Well, when I say 80 to 82 feet, I mean within the lake next to that structure, the dam. Well, we just had the flooding there in Haleiwa. You know, those streams were just overflowing. Right. And, you know, I think I've seen you out in the field traipsing through the mud, you know, by Camp Otaki way back when, when they've had there you go. problems yeah. there, yeah. you know. And, and so, you know, you, you kind of wonder if that was a problem area during your time and, and you were concerned about, you know, whether it's the spillway uh, and problems being caused there. I, I'm hoping DLNR and Haim will, you know, will be out there checking just to make sure that these dams are, are still sound. Yeah, me too. Uh, and, and thank you for saying Otaki Camp, because as I watched uh, things develop the other night on TV with the evacuation of Wailua, and, and that really, really got my attention. Those poor folks, I thought about Camp Otaki, because they're just downstream from Kaukonohua Stream and Gulch. And so they're going. To, they're, they're really the first folks to get affected right there, and then the flooding then spills on over toward Wailua and then toward the direction of Haleiwa. And on the other side of on the Haleiwa side, you have that major stream coming down from uh, the Mauka areas, and um, I, I believe the name of the stream is Opaiula. Yes, that beautiful bridge that's over it, and that was another area I think in maybe either 2008, 2009. There was a lot of flood damage. And, you know, I, I, I still remember attending a lot of town hall meetings after that and when, when people want to know what are you doing about this, what are you doing about that, and rightfully so. And I was reminded by the residents then a few years ago about um, flooding that had occurred, flash flooding. One house, if not more than one, was swept out to sea. And some of the residents never forgot that. And it was, it was a attention getter for me. What I did was, with the, with the help of the um, USGS and I think one other federal agency, we basically got the funding to put a gauge, a water gauge, on the, one of the new bypass bridges, if not the only bypass bridges, right above that particular stream in that particular area. Basically, if, if it water heights got up to there, it would send a signal by, I think, by satellite and then trigger another another warning for us so that we could also start uh, notify the county, the city county of Honolulu, and begin the evacuation of people and residents, businesses in the Haleiwa area, per se. So it was like a dual threat down there. And I tell you, I, it, all you need is, is the right kind of weather system and constant rain, and we we will have problems there in the Haleiwa Wailua area, yeah, almost a, perennially. It's a recipe perennial. for disaster. Yeah. More recently, you know, we've seen the concern I think about evacuations when uh, the new one reservoir, uh, one of the two up there, you know, right. had some right. stabilization issues, and that you know that that's a, a large urban population downstream. Yeah. And that was kind of scary, and that's a small one. You know, compared to a reservoir like Waita, Waita Dam, you know, on Kauai, and that's huge, you know, up there by Grove Farms. Not to alarm your faithful listeners that when we began looking at the modeling, we had the resources of uh, the Pacific Disaster Center, and I believe that there's still a relationship and a partnership with the Pacific Disaster Center out of Kihei, Maui, or with government agencies in Hawaii. So luckily we had the Pacific Disaster Center helping us do a lot of modeling for these earthen dams and other types of structures in the state of Hawaii. 
And the modeling they would do that in case of a rupture or some sort of a compromise, what would the downstream effect look like? And the new Uwanu Reservoir, with a, with a modeling like that, was, was interesting. It was an eye-opener. You know, when you look at the downflow and um, what the models would show in terms of areas that would be, could be potentially inundated by, um, by flooding, and then what, what, you would, would, what would you have to do as a civil defender or a emergency manager in evacuating those uh, impacted communities? We did the modeling, by the way, through the, I think, uh, Department of Land Natural Resources took the lead and then began to work with the Corps of Engineers and, uh, and the Pacific Disaster Center in doing more modeling for all these particular structures that would affect urban areas. And we should say that, you know, the Board of Water Supply uh, did lower the levels at the large uh, Nuwana Reservoir over there, you know, where we used to do all the fishing, the catfishing. Uh, you know, that's no longer allowed, and they've dropped the levels down because of the risk. You know, it's a high-risk area because right. of all the yeah, people living downstream. I can't the Board of Water Supply, you're right, and, and the work they've done hand-in-hand with the city and county of Honolulu as well as with the state. I can't, I can't forget. Thanks for bringing that up. And if I can go back to the Department of Land and Natural Resources, a couple times with uh, Lake Wilson, we went on out there to take a look at what was going on, and the Department of Land and Natural Resources engineers had brought in some portable pump units that were pumping out the lake. You know, it, um, it was better than nothing. It was like a little sieve, if you will, but they managed to, uh, you know, drop some of the water out of there before it got to a, a threatening height. That was Ed Texera, former administrator for the former state civil defense agency, now known as HAIMA, the Hawaii Emergency Management Agency. Uh, Texera was reflecting on dam safety in light of the recent evacuations on Maui and on Oahu's North Shore due to the recent risk of flash flooding. And you know, that does it for this Aloha Friday. Coming up next week, we talk cashews. Could we possibly develop a new second nut industry? Move over, macadamias. Call our talk back line. Leave us your comments. That's 808-792-8217. You can also email us at talkback at hawaiipublicradio.org. Post your comments on Facebook at The Conversation HPR or tweet us at HI Conversation. You can listen back to our, our shows on The Conversation page on our HPR website. Programs produced by Savannah Harriman-Pote, Russell Subiono, Lillian Song, and Jason Ubai. Backyard Quiz is thanks to John DeMello and our theme music, Gypsy 808. I'm Catherine Cruz. Join us on Monday. Pick up the conversation.